Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. I'm glad you're with me today on episode 27 of the Liberty Cafe. Of course, episode 27 means that we've passed the halfway mark, or the half-year mark, on doing this podcast. And I'm very glad that you're still with me. And I'm very glad to be sponsored by Texas Scorecard and Scorecard Media. It's a great organization, and they are leading the fight for liberty in Texas. And I encourage you to stop by and visit them and listen to this and other podcasts to read their great articles on TexasScorecard.com. I've been working in and around the Texas legislature since 1989. So in those 30 plus years I've been doing that, I've really established an identity as a policy person. I understand politics and I work in politics, but I've never been on the political side of things. I've been on the policy side of things. So if you wanted to label me as something, you could call me a policy analyst or a policy researcher. I'm still doing a lot of those kinds of things, but since I left full-time employment in a job and took on clients, I'm also doing some other things. And one of those things is that I am teaching sixth graders medieval history. I really love this job. Perhaps managing sixth graders, particularly sixth grade boys, isn't my strength, but still we manage to get along and they're eager to learn about history and I'm eager to share my thoughts and my understanding and my knowledge about history. So it really works out pretty well. And just this past couple of weeks, we've been talking about English common law and particularly the Magna Carta. And it was really fun because we've got some sixth grade level books that we read. But in this particular case, I went back and got a couple of excerpts from Winston Churchill's History of the English Speaking Peoples. This is a a full-blown academic level treatise on the history of of English-speaking peoples. And so it's not to be dismissed lightly, yet the sixth graders I had were able to work their way through this and gather the main concepts about these issues, particularly when it comes to the Magna Carta. And one of the main things that we talked about in this, and it was on their test this week, is that probably the most important aspect of the Magna Carta is that the king is not above the law. So let's go back and read a little bit from Churchill on this and what he has to say. If the 13th century magnates understood little and cared less for popular liberties or parliamentary democracy, they had all the same laid hold of a principle which was to be of prime importance for the future development of English society and English institutions. Throughout the document, it is implied that here is a law which is above the king and which even he must not break. This reaffirmation of a supreme law and its expression in in a general charter is the great work of the Magna Carta, and this alone justifies the respect in which men have held it. The reign of Henry II, according to the most respected authorities, initiates the rule of law, but the work as yet was incomplete. The crown was still above the law, The legal system which Henry had created could become, as John showed, an instrument of oppression. Now, for the first time, the king himself is bound by the law. The root principle was destined to survive across the generations and rise paramount long after the feudal background of 1215 had faded in the past. 
The charter became in the process of time an enduring witness that the power of the crown was not absolute. Well, that is absolutely the case, and it's absolutely correct, that this great gift of the Magna Carta was that no one is above the law, not even the government. Talking about the king back then, but today that would be the president, the governor, the legislatures, the courts, anybody who works in government. Now, now why is that? Where can we look to to find this truth? Well, of course, we look to the Bible because the law is above the government because it's God's law. And God is above all governments of man. God is above man. He's the creator. We're the creature. We are subject to whatever he says we are to do. So we have a problem today, however. We can look back to this great document and its witness to us today, but not all that many of us are actually doing that. We talk about the rule of law. We talk about individual liberties. We talk about the rights granted to us by our Creator, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or life, liberty, and property. But when it comes to the law of man today, we don't pay much stock to that. We have once again returned to a situation where, more often than not in our country, the government is above the law. Let's look at a few examples of that. Of course, the most pressing example, the most current example of that is voter fraud. I'm not going to get into the details of how much voter fraud there was or if there was enough voter fraud to overturn the outcome of this election. I, for one, personally think there was. But it's clear the the facts on the table are obvious. There was voter fraud in this presidential election. There was voter fraud back in the 2018 election. There was voter fraud back in the 2016 elections. Heck, there was voter fraud back in 1960. You could build a pretty good case that John Kennedy lost that election. It's also obvious that numerous laws have been broken in this process, and some of them were broken by the government. Yet citizens or states, it seems, has no access to a venue that can hold the governments accountable for what they've done. The courts have in many ways limited access of the people to the process. The courts are there for a reason. They're there to uphold the separation of powers, both between the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branch, but also the separation of powers between the federal government and the state governments. And they're also there to help protect the liberties of those being governed, just like all people in government are there for that purpose, because that's what God puts them in place for, is to protect the people whom they serve. That's not a very popular theology or ideology of government today, but it's the only one that counts because it's God's accounting of that. Yet people are being kept out of the process, and it's not just with the voter fraud, it's with everything. For instance, there's the standing issue. There's lots of different ways standing is applied. But one of the ways is, is you don't have standing unless you can prove that you've been harmed somehow. So in the case of the voter fraud, for instance, you have a situation where some people filed suit against the problems 
with the voting laws or the changes to the voting laws before the election, but they were thrown out. Sorry, you don't have standing. There's no harm been done. Okay. Well, then now it's after the election and we file suit again. Sorry, you don't have standing. Well, because you're too late. You should have filed it earlier or you don't have standing because you weren't really hurt. That's what happened to the Texas case. They were dismissed because of lack of standing because the state of Texas doesn't have any interest in it because they weren't harmed, even though they said that they were suing on behalf of their people. Well, if the state can't sue on behalf of the people and the people can't sue on their own behalf, well, you see the problem there. This goes far beyond that. There's a case in the Texas Supreme Court, and this isn't so much about standing. Uh, This is about deference to legislative and executive branches. The, the courts say, oh, we have to defer to them because they're the, the ones that have been given the authority by the Constitution to pass the laws. Uh, the, the legislative branches are closest to the people, all those kinds of things. And this case in Texas was the North Texas city of Rolette decided it really needed a grocery store in town. It didn't have one. So it told a property owner there if it would put a grocery store on its site, it would subsidize the process. Well, the developer found a grocery store, Sprouts, who said they would come to town, and so they signed a deal. But Sprouts had a provision in its contract with the developer that it wouldn't pay full rent for this property unless it had better access to another development close by that I think had a Walmart in there or Costco, something like that, which would have a lot of traffic, and they wanted better access and kind of the loop around that people would have to come over to Sprouts. And so the developer approached the owner of some land in between the two about using their access to get over to the Walmart and so people could get over to the Sprouts. And the other owner said, sure, you can have access to that. It'll cost you this much. Well, the developer didn't want to pay that much. And so there was no deal. And so this developer just went to the city of Roulette and said, hey, I can't get access to here. Would you condemn this property from that developer so that my clients over here can have better access to this property over there? And the city said, sure. Of course, the developer didn't really tell the city that they're going to get higher rent for all this. And the city went ahead and did it because they really wanted a grocery store in there. And they condemned this property. They took it so that this other developer would benefit. And the Texas Supreme Court allowed this to happen. They said it wasn't for a private benefit. It was for a public use. So now in Texas, you can pretty much take property for anything as long as you come up with this sort of so-called excuse rationale that this is for a public use. And the courts aren't going to look at it very closely because they've come up with this doctrine of deference, in this case, to the executive branch. So they're they're just not going to look at it closely. Of course, this is all a fiction because the courts typically don't defer so much to the legislative and executive branches when there's some liberal principle at stake. They go right in and say, this is a top priority. We need to get in there. But when it's liberty and freedom and economics involved and property involved, those things aren't so important. The state's interest outweighs 
these basic fundamental liberties. But it's not just the courts doing this, of course, and supporting the legislative and executive branches and those kinds of things. There's sometimes some outright defiance of the law. And that, that's the case with Greg Abbott's executive orders. I mean, if, if you've seen this around the COVID-19 debate, it's clear that what the governor is doing, based on statutory authority, in suspending laws, forcing people to pay penalties, even arresting people like Shelley Luther, it's just unconstitutional. So the governor is making all his orders and allowing local governments to have all their orders about shutting us down, wearing masks, based on Section 418.016 of the Texas Government Code, which says the governor may suspend the provisions of any regulatory statute prescribing the procedures for conduct of a state business or the orders or rules of a state agency if strict compliance with the provisions, orders, or rules would in any way prevent, hinder, or delay necessary action in coping with a disaster. Well, that's all good and fine. And it's not like the governor shouldn't have some flexibility at times to deal with true emergencies. But the Texas Constitution says very clearly that no power of suspending laws in this state shall be exercised except by the legislature. So the legislature, when it delegated to the governor the ability to suspend laws, would pass an unconstitutional law. They can't delegate authority they don't have. And the Texas courts have said this very clearly over time. Yet, no Texas court has been willing to take this on, whether it's a standing issue or a timeliness issue or whatever else. The governor continues to do what he does without paying attention to this. The legislature's not in session, but even when the legislature comes back in session, I'm not sure they're going to do the right thing on this either and make it clear that the governor can't do some of the things they've been doing. So as I started this podcast off with, this principle that the Magna Carta is a witness to that the government or the king is not above the law, we're still being witnessed to that by the Magna Carta. And it's a really good time to use that as a witness because we can't very much see that principle in many of our laws today and the way the government is treating them. Let's close by talking about the complicity of the church in this. The church is complicit in this because it basically takes the view that, you know, government just really isn't subject to a lot of God's laws. And and that's the truth, whether you're talking about dispensationalism, which is kind of prevalent in the Baptistic Bible church land, or the two kingdoms theology, which has a fair amount of following in Reformed circles. Of course, none of these people would actually say that the, the, the government is above God's law. But the end result of what they are preaching and teaching is essentially the same as that. Right? Because they say a lot of God's laws just don't apply to the government because out here, government and the culture, that's all part of this common kingdom, to use two kingdoms theology terminology. It's not God's kingdom. It's all going to hell in a handbasket. And we're just going to have to deal with that until Jesus comes back and makes all things new. Well, that just gets it all wrong. Jesus is now making all things new. He is sitting on his throne at the right 
hand of God, and he is ruling over all things. There is only one kingdom in operation today, and that is the one of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Yes, Colossians, for instance, tells us that there are still some in this world, many, that are held captive in Satan's domain of darkness. But even there in that domain, Satan and his allies are under the lordship and dominion of Jesus Christ. And the government and the government leaders are included in this. Government leaders have an obligation to obey God and do what he tells them to do, regardless of whether they believe them. So the the path forward on this is simple. Not easy, not going to happen overnight, but it's simple. It's like Paul in Acts 20. The church must teach the whole counsel of God. can't just pick and choose, but you have to take the whole counsel of God and apply it to the whole culture. And this will, first of all, bring those in darkness to light. That is the true way in which we're going to solve our problems, is the advance of God's kingdom in the sense that everybody not becomes just subjects of it, but willing and obedient subjects. And then second, it, it will also ensure that those of us in the light will understand what we're being taught and apply it to the whole culture. Thank you for joining me today on episode 27 of the Liberty Cafe. And thank you also to our sponsors, Texas Scorecard and Scorecard Media.